Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, hopefully you can find the book of Ecclesiastes. It's after Proverbs. And last year, we spent an entire year from fall to spring in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews was deeply theological. It was difficult. We had to get to chapter 7 where we talked about Melchizedek. And I don't know if you guys even remember Hebrews. But now we're diving into the Old Testament and we're going to a very practical book that really addresses a lot of issues that um, I think are pertinent to us. Some people would say Ecclesiastes is one of the hardest books to understand in the Old Testament. I don't know if it's hard to understand. I think sometimes we come to it with different attitudes. So let me just see a show of hands. How many of you have ever done a study of Ecclesiastes, like in depth? Okay, not, not very many of you. So when was the last time you read Ecclesiastes? <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's all right. So tonight we're going to do two things. We're going to do an introduction, like why are we studying this book? And then we're going to go through chapter, the first half of chapter one. So let's just begin tonight. Um, I got to lay some introduction because we're jumping into an Old Testament book. It's difficult to understand sometimes Old Testament books that aren't stories. Um, Genesis is pretty easy because it tells a story, right? Um, law, Leviticus, it's kind of hard to understand all those different laws, but we're jumping into a book that we're not that familiar with. And so the question we have to ask tonight is, well, why study Ecclesiastes? Well, why did I choose this book of all books to study this time around? Well, I think that the book deals with a lot of issues that are really pertinent to our culture right now, especially American culture. Uh, we're going to see a lot of issues addressed in these chapters together. So let's just talk about our culture right now. There's no surprise that we live in a very weird culture. And so I've just kind of listed, I don't even know how many there are on here, but just some things that our culture is plagued with right now that I think the book of Ecclesiastes addresses. So our culture is plagued with secularism. What is secularism? Um, Secularism is the idea that culture, society, government, schools, the public square, there should be no religious impact. Secularism says we don't talk about religion. Religion has no place in the public square. That's private between you and God. But don't you dare bring your religion, your beliefs into the public square. Do we not live in a secular world? It's plagued by secularism. Okay. All right. Another thing that our culture is plagued with is hedonism. Now, what is hedonism? It's not a resort. Isn't there a resort called hedonism or something? I think there's like, a, like in the tropics or something. Isn't there some kind? Hedonism is the idea that people should pursue the maximum amount of pleasure in the here and now with no regard for moral consequences or eternity. Do we live in that kind of culture? Pleasure. Now. I need it now. I want to have pleasure. I don't care about the consequences. Whatever makes me feel good right now, I want the maximum experience of that. Okay? A third thing that our culture, I think, is plagued with is materialism. This is the idea 
that people should accumulate as much wealth as possible and live in selfish prosperity. Now, is having money inherently evil? No. Is materialism evil? Yes, because materialism is this whole idea that my identity is wrapped up in my wealth, my possessions. I'm obsessed with gaining things. I want to selfishly accumulate as much as I can at all costs. I have this desire for stuff. Okay? I think also our culture is searching for knowledge and truth. Now, where are they searching for knowledge and truth? Are they searching for it in the the Bible? There's a lot of different places where people are searching for knowledge and truth. And I think our culture is also plagued with fame and popularity. People want to be famous. They want to be popular. They want to be wanted. And so this is the culture that we live in. Now, let me just ask you a question. Has anything changed? You think that the people in the Bible were dealing with these same things? Okay. When did this happen? It started happening in Genesis 3, okay? And it hasn't changed since. And we're going to see that in the book of Ecclesiastes. It just so happens that in American culture, I think we're seeing it up close and front and center at a very heightened pace. Would you agree with that? That just everything about our culture right now is moving further and further away from a biblical worldview, further and further away from the gospel into this selfishness. Now, do you know what today's God is? Here's today's God. This is my personal opinion. I have the right to express myself and nobody tells me that I can't do otherwise. The greatest God is self-expression regardless of what values or morals you have. You see it all over the place. Okay? So that's why we're studying Ecclesiastes because we live in a culture that's plagued by all of these things and this book deals head on with a lot of this stuff. Okay? Now... What is the genre of Ecclesiastes? Now, when we talk about genre, let me just introduce that word. Uh, we, we, we use that word um, to talk about what type of literature is it? Um, is it a narrative where it tells a story? No. Like a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's not like that. It's not like Genesis. Is it a bunch of laws like Leviticus and Deuteronomy? No. Is it prophecy where, where a prophet's... Um, issuing um, judgments on the nation of Israel? Is it apocalyptic, where it's talking about the future? Is it a letter? No, it's none of those. It is considered part of what we call the wisdom literature. Now, the wisdom literature in your Bible would be Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, and Job. So all those books that are kind of right there together, they're what's considered wisdom literature. So it's wisdom literature is a little hard to understand because we're not that familiar with this type of genre, especially poetry. Poetry, wisdom literature. um, Wisdom literature is not telling us a story. It's telling us more how to live life in this world. It's more of a how-to. Wisdom, how do you live the Christian life in this world? Okay, now, who is the author? Turn to Ecclesiastes 1.1. The words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. 
Mine says preacher, but the Hebrew word is Kohelet. And we'll talk about that. So who would be the son of David, the king in Jerusalem? Who would you think that would be? Solomon. Okay. This has been the traditional view up to about, well, about Martin Luther. Martin Luther questioned whether it was really Solomon. Um, This is the traditional view that Ecclesiastes is written by the literal Solomon, the literal son of David, the literal king in Jerusalem. But he calls himself, he doesn't call himself Solomon here, he calls himself the preacher. Now, liberal scholars today deny that it was Solomon. I personally am going to take it as Solomon. I'm going to take the traditional view because I um, don't want to get into all of the the history and the the study there, but I I just take it to be, he's using a pseudonym, okay? He's using the word Kohelet, okay? The author is called Kohelet, the preacher. Do you have a footnote down in your Bible that says the words of the preacher and it maybe comes down there and says... The Hebrew word Kohelet. Does any of yours have a? Anybody have a footnote? Okay, so I'm going to refer to Kohelet a lot. So um, we'll just start using some, throwing down some Hebrew Kohelet. Now, let me just give you a little bit of Hebrew here because you may ask the question: Why is the book called Ecclesiastes? What does it sound like? Ecclesiastical. Ecclesia. Do you guys know what the Greek word ecclesia is? It's church. Or literally the assembly. The Hebrew word Kohelet carries the idea of one who stands or sits in the assembly of Israel, obviously in the Old Testament, and preaches a message or teaches a message. And so what we have here are the words of the preacher. I think that's the way the ESV. Does anybody else have teacher? Some of your translations may say, who has teacher? And some of yours have preacher. Okay. It doesn't matter which one you use because it's Kohelet. Okay. So we'll just use the Hebrew word. He's the Kohelet. He is the one. Basically, it means the one who speaks in the assembly. The one who stands before the assembly of Israel and either preaches or teaches. Okay, So either translation is fine, the preacher or the teacher. The Hebrew word there is kohelet. Okay? He's the primary speaker in the congregation. Okay, So these are his words. We, we assume it's Solomon. He doesn't come right out and say it's Solomon. He uses kind of this pseudonym. I am the, like sometimes people call me Pastor Sean. Sometimes people call me Sean. Sometimes people call me Mr. Cole. And sometimes people call me the preacher. Okay? And so Solomon here is the preacher. Okay? All right. Now, how should we read this interesting book? Think about a tapestry for a moment. Those of you that are weavers or quilters which I am not, so I'm speaking out of my sphere of influence. But what, what do you have with the tapestry? What, what, what goes into a tapestry? Do you have, you have threads going which way? Threads going horizontal, threads going vertical, and they go together to make a big picture. Okay, so when you step back, what do you see? The big picture, but what's it made of? 
Threads that run horizontal, threads that run vertical. Okay, we're seeing these two threads in, in Ecclesiastes. What do you think the horizontal threads are? The vantage point of life in this world. What the preacher's going to observe from life on this world, the horizontal plane. What do you think the vertical thread is? The perspective of God and how God relates to this world. And so we're going to be in two worlds in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it can get kind of depressing. Okay, Some people think, man, Ecclesiastes is so depressing. This guy was like neurotically depressed. He's the, the ultimate pessimist. I don't think that's what he's being. He's being a realist. He's saying, listen, the world we live in, this horizontal plane that we live in, there's real pain, there's real issues, there's, there's, there's enigmas, there's quagmires, there's issues. I want to be realistic about that. But if that's where I stay, I am going to be depressed, so I'm going to interject this godly perspective and, and, and look at how God views or how God comes to bear in this thing. And what we see here is that God is in control of His creation. So the question becomes, all right, if the preacher is going to teach us, about life in this world. He's going to give us wisdom. What does this book tell us about God? There's a lot, but let's look at three things that this book will tell us about God. Number one, front and center, it will tell us that God is the creator. Just look at chapter 11, verse 5 for a moment. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Pretty clear, right? It's a mystery to know. Basically, we'll get to that later, but he's like, it's a mystery to know how the, the baby forms in the womb. God does that. And by the way, God makes what? Everything. God is the creator of all things he's the creator so that's the first thing it's going to tell us about is he's the creator and the second thing it's going to tell us is since he's the creator he's also sovereign he is sovereign over the world he created this is not a world of chance it's not a world of fatalism it's a world that's governed by god now does that mean we always understand how god works does that mean that we always know what God is doing? What is God doing behind the scenes that we oftentimes can't see? He is orchestrating things to His desired end. Although we may not see it or not, He's sovereignly in control over all things. And the book of Ecclesiastes is going to tell us that He's the Creator, He's the Sovereign. And then here's the, here's the part that's hard about Ecclesiastes. God is mysterious. How many of you have questions that you've never had answered about God? My wife is one of those. <laughs> She'll come to me sometimes and say, have you ever thought about this? So she's a deep thinker, my wife is. And some of you are deep thinkers. You're like, man, I have all these questions. That... And really, when you stop and contemplate the world, especially a fallen world, you end up with more questions than answers. And that's what the preacher is going to do. He's going to ask a lot of questions. He's going to observe life and say, you know what? I've got a lot of questions. And sometimes the search for meaning and wisdom and purpose is difficult and frustrating and we don't have all the answers. Go to chapter 3, verse 11. This is one of the famous passages from Ecclesiastes, but 
3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. I want to know. I want to find out. There's this inner drive for knowledge. There's this inner drive for answers. God has created us in His image to want to ask questions, to be inquisitive, to um, inquiring minds want to know. And oftentimes we find ourselves asking more questions than we get answers. Now, are you okay with that? That's the hard part. Sometimes we're not okay with that because we want God to answer every single one of our questions and sometimes He does not. So God is mysterious and he works in mysterious ways and that's where faith comes in because God is sovereign, God is creator and he's not always going to tell us or show us what he's doing. Therefore, we must trust absolutely in him. Now, what's the overall purpose of this book? What's the main idea? If you read the entire book, you have to ask the question, okay, what's Solomon, what's the preacher, what's the Kohelet? trying to drive home now there's a lot of things we could go there's i think there's a there's a few but let let me just kind of word word it here Uh, what i think is excuse me his main point is number one we have to understand who his original audience is his original audience is israel okay so we have to understand what he's speaking to israel before we understand what he's saying to us so solomon or the teacher wants to urge israel that's his original audience to fear God and to turn away from a life of emptiness and meaningless without God as the center. He wants Israel to reject a secular worldview. What's a secular worldview? What do we say is a secular worldview? Secular worldview. What was that? Void of, yeah, it's a world, what, first of all, what's a worldview? Let's just talk, what's a worldview? A manly idea. How, okay, how you view the world. A worldview would be your set of values, your assumptions, the way you view life, your beliefs, everything that shapes how you live, how you think, what you believe, that's your worldview. Now, as those who are Christians, what should be our worldview? A Christian, a biblical, a scriptural, a worldview that is informed by the scriptures as the foundation for how we view the world. Okay? What's a secular worldview? It's the exact opposite. A secular worldview is the way I think, my assumptions, the way I view life, my belief, my values, my priorities are all viewed through a lens without God. And the preacher's going to tell us, if that's the way you view life, it is meaningless. The question becomes, how many people in our world are living in a secular worldview? Lots. And the preacher's going to tell us their life is pretty much meaningless. Now, that's kind of a strong statement. He's also going to tell us this. He's going to remind us that as humans, we are mortal. And we must abandon any illusion of self-importance by facing the realities of death and life in a fallen world. We are mortals. Now, what is our culture value? 
We have gods and goddesses, don't we? They're called athletes, movie stars, people we put up on pedestals. What is our culture obsessed with? Staying young, staying fit, never getting old, plastic surgery. (laughs) You look at TV. What's the message that that Hollywood and culture is trying to send to you? It's a shame for you to get old. And what's the Bible say? You're going to get old. You're going to get gray hairs. You're going to have knee replacement surgery. You're going to get cancer. You're going to die. And it's because you're mortal and you live in a fallen world. So don't have any illusion that somehow you're that important in the grand scheme of things, that you can somehow escape these realities. And so if that's the point, reject a secular worldview, reject a life of meaningless, realize you're mortal in a fallen world, then the question is, okay, how, how should we live in a fallen world? There's three main conclusions to how we should live in a... When I say fallen world, I'll talk about that in just a moment. But what I mean by a fallen world is a world that's plagued by sin because of what Adam and Eve did. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Okay. So, what are, how should we live in a fallen world? Well, these are going to be addressed in the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll just look at three of these big picture items. Number one, we must be realistic about our pride and reject it. What does the Bible say about pride? I'm glad you asked. Proverbs 11.2 When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. I'm just going to say those and let them sink because sometimes Proverbs, you have to just go, you kind of have to grab onto it and let it sink in. Proverbs 16.18 Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. What does Jesus say about pride? In Mark 6, 7, 21 through 22, For from within, this is what Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, comes what? He gives a list. What, is, what comes out of our hearts? Jesus says, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness comes out of our hearts. And then James 4, 6 says this. He gives more grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if you want to experience disgrace, if you want to experience destruction, if you want to be in a life of foolishness and you want to be opposed by God, be prideful. The opposite's true. If you want to be a life uh, that, that's blessed of God, is to be humble before Him. And so one of the temptations that all of us are going to struggle with is pride. We're going to want to be the center. We're going to want to be puffed up. We're going to want the world to revolve around us. And that's just, that's a reality. And so the Kohelet, the teacher, is going to tell us we need to reject pride. Okay? But at the same token, it almost sounds like he um, contradicts himself, but he doesn't, as we'll see over the next coming weeks. Number two, we should enjoy life as a great gift from God. There is a lot in the book of Hebrews about enjoying life as a gift from God. Now, 
Sometimes as evangelical Christians, we can get an unbalanced view of life. And we can have this whole attitude that as Christians, we're not allowed to have any fun. We've got to walk around straight-laced and dour and never laugh and have our hands folded and be praying 24 hours and never enjoy a good meal with friends and laugh around the campfire because Christians don't do that. We're pious people. That's robotic, and that's not really human. God has created... Why do you think God created all the different types of food? Think about fruit for a moment. God could have just had one fruit, an orange is all you're getting. Some of you are like, oh, wow, I don't really like oranges. Or like me, I'm allergic to, to watermelon. Watermelon's all you're getting. But think about all the different types of fruit God has created. Why has he done that, and why are they all different colors? So you can enjoy them. Why did God create steak? All the different cuts. New York strip, potivum. So you could enjoy it. Why did God invent all these or create all these things or given people to, to create these things. It's for our enjoyment. Now, what's the problem oftentimes? What ends up happening? You can abuse what God has given us to enjoy. So you've got to be careful. But what Solomon's going to say is, listen, this life is meant to be enjoyed as long as you have the right perspective. That God has given you these things as gifts to enjoy and you worship and you honor and you glorify Him as, as the gift giver. And so enjoy life. Eat, drink, and be merry. He will tell us that. All right? And number three, in all figs, it should be in all things. <laughs> that's, my, that's my misprint. In all figs, in all, it's not thighs either, it's thing, things. In all things... This is really the bottom line. In all things, we must live a life of worship and dependence upon God. Now, I'm going to take us to the end of the book. We'll get there, but like he, he takes us through 12 chapters, and then at the very end, he says, okay, here's my point. So let's go, let's, let's go to the very end of the book. You're like, those of you that like to cheat and read how the ending goes, we're going to do that tonight. But I think it's important to set the stage for why he's written this book. So... Verse 13, he tells us, chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. So, so here's my point. I've spent 12 chapters telling you, here's the bottom line. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Live a life of worship, live a life of obedience, and realize there's coming judgment. That's the framework for this entire book. Live a life of worship and dependence upon God. Don't be prideful. Enjoy life as a gift, but realize in all things you must worship and depend upon God. Fear God. Okay? Now, another question that maybe you're asking, that I often ask, how does Ecclesiastes relate to the rest of the Bible? I want you to think about Genesis for a moment. And you guys tell me. We, a few years ago, we, we preached through the book of Genesis. But you're familiar enough with the Bible. Let's think of Genesis chapters 1 through 4. What happens in Genesis chapter 1? You guys tell me. Creation. God creates. And what does he say? What's the refrain? 
It is good. It is good. It is good. God created everything good. Okay. What happens in Genesis 2? Creation again, but this is more the story of how God created Adam and Eve to live together in the garden. So you've got Adam and Eve in the garden. They're walking with God in the cool of the day. There's perfect fellowship. That's the first two chapters of the Bible, right? What happens in Genesis 3? Very, very bad. Okay. You've got what theologians call the fall. Okay. That is where Satan enters the garden. He tempts Eve to eat the fruit. It's, 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 she lusts after it with her eyes. Adam doesn't do anything to stop the serpent. He's passive. He's not a good husband. She takes the fruit. He takes the fruit. What happens? They disobey God's direct command. They go and hide themselves because they're guilty. And God pronounces a curse upon the serpent. God says, okay, Adam, you're going to have to start working the ground and there's going to be thorns and thistles and you're going to have to sweat. And by the way, Eve, you're going to have painful childbirth. And then in Genesis 3.15, God promises that there's going to be a Messiah that's going to come and make all things right. Okay, so there's a huge division between chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Genesis, right? It's called the fall. And then what happens in Genesis 4? Cain and Abel, the first family. There's murder and mayhem all before television. <laughs> and all before internet and video games. I'm being facetious. Sin does not necessarily, what does Jesus say? Sin comes from within. So it shows the dysfunction of the very first family. There's murder. Now, I want to show you. I want you to say the name Abel out loud. Say it out loud for a, moment, for a minute. Abel. Okay, now I want you to say it like this. Abel. Okay, that's how it's pronounced in Hebrew. Okay. So let's go to Genesis 3. Never mind. I mean, we can go to Genesis 3, 8 through 15, but I just kind of summarized it for you. Let's go to Romans 5. I mean... Romans 5.12 is on the screen. Mm-hmm. I just kind of summarized Genesis 3.8. I, I didn't turn the page on my notes. We were supposed to read Genesis 3.8-15, but I summarized it for you. If you'd like to go back and read it, you can on your own. But I basically told you what happened there in the paraphrase version. But Romans 5.12 says this. Paul gives a commentary. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Who's the one man that sin came through? Adam. And what came? Death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because of Adam's sin, death, the curse, the fall, guilt entered into the human race. Now, let's go to, keep your finger in in Ecclesiastes. Let's go to Genesis 4, 1 through 5. And I want you to see the first family. And it's Cain and Abel. Genesis 4. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I'm the one that produced Cain. I did this. Oh, by the way, God helped me, but it was all me. And she again bore his brother. What's his name? Abel. Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, 
of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And you know the rest of the story. He went and killed his brother. Now, why do I, tell, why do I, why do I say pronounce his name Abel? The very word Abel means breath, vapor. How many verses are there about Abel? Just a few, because what happens? He's on the scene, and he's snuffed out. He's just a breath. He's only there for a minute. Now, go back to Ecclesiastes, and I want you to look at verse 2 of chapter 1. The ESV translates it, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Do some of you have different translations? There's all different words. Meaningless? Okay. Do you know what the word there is? Abel. It's very close to the word Abel. It's the whole idea of breath, vapor. Now, why do I show you Genesis 1 through 4? Genesis 1 through 4 tells us what? It tells us the story of why our world is the way it is. God created in six days, it was good. The crowning pinnacle of his creation is Adam and Eve. He created them in his own image. They worked the garden. They live in perfect fellowship with God. They were in the Garden of Eden, chapter 3. There's the fall into sin. There's the curse. And then there's murder and mayhem. That's a story that explains how the world got the way it is. Ecclesiastes echoes Genesis 1 through 4, but it doesn't tell the story like Genesis does. What Ecclesiastes is going to tell us is how we as weak, fallen mortals should live in a world that's in decay. Which side of Genesis are we on? Are we on Genesis 1 and 2 or are we after Genesis? We're, on, we're in Genesis 3, right? We are in a fallen, cursed, chaotic, sinful world. And we can't change that until Christ comes back and makes all things new. So Genesis tells the story of how it got that way. Ecclesiastes is telling us, okay, if this is where we find ourselves, the big question then becomes how? How are we going to live in a fallen world? How are we going to make sense of a fallen world? That's why it's wisdom literature. How do you live life in a fallen world? As mortals, as those that are sinful, as those who have inherited sin from Adam, as those who are prideful, how are you going to live? That's the question that Ecclesiastes is going to be pushing us toward. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 something very interesting about the results of the fall. In Romans 8, 20 through 22, Paul says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That's God. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You ever heard that passage of Scripture? Let's see what Paul says here. There's four things Paul tells us about creation as a result of the fall. First of all, the creation was subject to what? 
futility. Now, it's very interesting. The Greek word in the New Testament book of Romans for futility is very similar to the Hebrew word there that we're going to see over and over again. Vanity, vanity, empty, futility. Okay? Meaningless, useless. Our world right now is a fallen world of futility. Okay? Second... This was not a random accident, but the curse of God on creation from the fall. Notice it says, God subjected it. God subjected it. It wasn't just an accident. God purposely cursed the earth because of Adam and Eve. I like what R.C. Sproul says. If there's a maverick molecule roaming around the universe somewhere that's not under God's control, then God ceases to be sovereign. Third... Creation will one day be set free from its bondage. What does he say there? Verse 21, In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when does that happen? On the last day, whatever that is, when Christ comes in full glory, there will be a new heaven and a new earth where God will liberate or free this world and its bondage to corruption and the curse of the fall. So we live between two poles, right? We live between Genesis 3. Okay, so we're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. It's not here yet. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Chapter 3, it all goes south. The past how many thousands of years, it's all going south. One day, Christ is going to come back. He's going to redeem the earth itself create a new heavens and a new earth and all of the bondage and decay and um, futility that we experience right now will be over with finally and we'll live forever with Jesus. And we hope for that day. We wait for that day. But right now that day's not here. So we still live in a fallen world. And again, the writer of, Hebrew, the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us how do we live in a fallen world? And it's interesting because Paul says, here's what's going on right now. The fourth thing he says, right now, The entire creation is groaning under the curse of sin like a mother with birth pains. Now, I've never given birth, but there's a lot of women in here that have. Did you groan? Did you have pains? Okay, if the earth is groaning and having pains, what does that look like? Hurricanes, earthquakes, natural disasters, floods, volcanoes, any physical manifestation of the effects of the fall on the earth. So when you see natural disasters, it's it's not just, oh, there's a random disaster over there. Now, we don't exactly know how it all works, but the Bible says these are the the creation is groaning because it's in bondage, and it's waiting to be redeemed. Sometimes it's just got to get it out of its system. How does it get it out of its system? Well, I want to do a hurricane over here. Or I want to have a volcano. I mean, I mean, God is sovereign over all that, but it's, it's the world. And so Paul describes the fallen world. Now, we live in this fallen world. So we're, we're surrounded by natural disasters, sin, pride, alienation, guilt, and hostility. This is a reality that the preacher, the Kohelet, is going to show us in graphic detail. He wants us to feel the groaning of the earth. And the question then becomes, okay, how? If the earth is groaning, if the earth is under corruption, if we are products of the fall, how do we live? 
And he's going to say, really, there's two ways to live. There are those who live according to the flesh and worldly standards and have a secular worldview. And there are those who live under the rule of God. And Paul tells us that. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. What's the description of a lost person? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Lost people, they're spiritually dead. Follow Satan, follow the world, follow their flesh. Children of wrath. But... And that was, Paul says that's what all of us were at one point. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So, in a fallen world, we are saved by grace. How are we going to live? Now, with that being the introduction, are you ready to dump, jump into Ecclesiastes? I had to give a lot of introduction here because we're diving into a book that's somewhat hard to, to learn. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, is its own unit of thought, and that's, that's all I want to do tonight because I'm afraid it might be information overload. Okay? So again, I'm going to take the view that Solomon wrote this, that he, in fact, is the Kohelet. And so let's just go, we're just going to go verse by verse. Okay, let's read the entire chapter, I mean the entire passage, and then we'll go back verse by verse and just explain what's going on here. Okay, the words of the Kohelet, the preacher, the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. And around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. What in the world does he mean? All right. Verse 1, he identifies himself as the Kohelet the preacher. Now, he says he's the king in Jerusalem. When you normally think of a king, what do you think of? Someone who issues commands or edicts that people need to follow. I'm the king, so you need to follow me. He's going to say, I'm stepping aside from my kingly role. I'm not going to issue commands. I'm going to be like a preacher of wisdom. And instead, I'm going to give you some reflections. I'm going to give you some encouragement. I'm going to give you wisdom on how to live life in a fallen world. I'm going to be giving you wisdom. I'm going to be giving you advice. I'm going to be giving you my reflections. Now, what do we know about Solomon? Was he not the wisest man who ever lived? Did he not have a lot of life experience? He was a king. He had a lot of life experience, a lot of possessions, a lot of things he saw come and go. 
Now, verse 2. I want to hear all the different translations that we have out there of this word. The ESV says vanity. And I'm going to hear other. What are some other words? Meaningless. So vanity, meaningless. What else? Anybody else have anything else besides vanity or meaningless? Futile. Okay. This is the key word in Ecclesiastes. One of the key words. Again, it's Hebel. Not Abel, but Hebel. It's very close to Abel. And it, it has a lot of different meanings. It can mean vapor. It can mean temporal. What's temporal mean? It doesn't last very long. It can mean futile, senseless. It can actually even mean absurd. What's absurd mean? This is whack. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. So it's, it's kind of an elastic Hebrew word. That, so I don't want you to think about just one thing. It means all these things together. Absurdly, temporally, vapor-like, meaningless. Psalm 144.4 Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. There's that breath imagery. It's the same word there. Proverbs 21.6 The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor. A fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Same word. Okay? This word, vanity, or vapor, or meaningless, shows up 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. What he's saying is, in a fallen world, if you have a worldview without God as the center, everything you do is going to be meaningless. It's going to have no lasting value. It's going to be absurd. It will never satisfy. Now, he could have just said what? Read read your text there. What does he say? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. Now, he could have just said what? Vanity. Why does he say vanity of vanities? You've heard this expression before a different way. What was the centermost part of the tabernacle? The holy of holies. So when the Bible uses something of something, it's, it's, the, it's, it's a way to exaggerate or compound that this is the greatest. The Holy of Holies was the greatest place of worship in the life of Israel. It's the Holy of Holies. It was the holiest place. So when he says vanity of vanities, he's basically saying, this is the most meaningless thing you can think of. Vanity of vanities. All is Vanity. It's not quite winter yet, but when winter comes and you go out on a cold morning, what do you see? You see your breath. What happens to your breath? It's there and then it's... Can you catch your breath? I mean... No, literally, can you take your hand and catch the breath? Gone, can't catch it, where did it go? It's what? A vapor. It's there, it's gone, and when you try to catch it, you can't. That's the image that the, that the Kohelet is trying to let us know about life without God. It's meaningless. It's like a vapor. It's there. It's gone. It's never going to return. It's useless. James 4.14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Vapor, mist, breath, meaningless, absurd, 
vanity, useless, futile. It's what that Hebrew word means. And what he's saying here is that life in a fallen world without Christ as your center is going to be absolutely futile, meaningless, and empty. But yet so many people walk through life experiencing that worldview without God. And what's the, what's the, what's the irony? What do, they think it's going to, what do they think they're getting? They're experiencing joy and happiness and fulfillment, but in fact, they're not. Now, verse 3, Solomon is going to start with his first issue, and he's going to ask a question. The issue he's going to address is materialism, or more specifically, the human drive to work for and find security and material wealth and possessions. He goes right to the heart of materialism. Look at the question he asks in verse 3. What does man, what? Gain. Literally in the Hebrew, profit. What does man profit? What does man gain by all this toil that he toils under the sun? Making money, having material possessions, working hard, are not in and of themselves sinful. you got to work for a living. You want to gain a paycheck. You want to make money. Nobody here is going to say that's sinful. But when a believer in Christ adopts a secular worldview of elevating materialism and the drive to work above God, then it becomes what? Idolatry. Okay. From a merely humanistic perspective, this horizontal plane, he's saying, listen, you're running around trying to gain and gain and get and get... What are you really getting? You're working hard, you're working hard, you're working hard. It's like you're a treadmill. You're that hamster on the treadmill going and going and going, but you never get anything. What are you really getting from all the stuff you're getting? What are you profiting? And then he addresses another term there. What does he say at the end of verse 3? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Under the sun is the other key word. So vanity or meaningless is one of the key words under the sun. Life under the sun. This means, it's code word for a meaningless and empty life without Christ as Lord. Life under the sun is a secular life of man-centeredness. This also shows up 29 times in the book. And again, it means a life devoid of God's presence where man attempts to find his way through his own wisdom and resources. Life under the sun is the way the writer of Ecclesiastes uses it. What do we call it in the New Testament? We call it the world. Life in this world. What does John say in 1 John? 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, if I had Solomon and John next to each other, Solomon would say, it's life under the sun. And John would say, no, it's the world. And they're both right, okay? The Kohelet is just calling it life under the sun is code word for living in a fallen, man-centered 
world. Okay? And there's a grave danger of buying into the American dream that all of our work will gain us something important and prosperous without living in the fear of the Lord. All right, verse 4. How are we doing on time? We got, we got, we're doing good on time. All right, let's look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He's going to stress the futility and meaningless of generations coming and going. People are born, people are dead. There's going to be people here after us. There were people here before us. It's a cycle of generations. You come, you go, you die. And then in verses 5 through 7, he's going to give three examples from nature to stress this whole idea of coming and going, rising and dying. The first one, he says, is the sun. Look at there at verse 5. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. Every day, what happens? Sun comes up. Every day, literally the sun doesn't come up and come down. That's what we call a sunrise. We know scientifically. But it's interesting. The psalmist, if this was the Psalms, and if it was like David, David would be like, oh, Lord, praise you for the rising of the sun. It's glorious. It's beautiful. What does the writer of Ecclesiastes say? This gets kind of boring. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. Sun goes up, sun goes down. I'm going to go out tomorrow, the sun's going to be up. I go, it's going to down. Yeah, every day. And then, it's interesting, the wording he uses there, he says the sun hastens to the place where it rises. Literally, the word means pants. The sun is panting. It's a poetic way of showing, like, I'm a runner, and I'm running, and I'm never reaching the finish line. I'm, I'm panting. It's this whole idea that the, the sun's just in this endless treadmill of going up and going down. I'm rising, I'm falling. This is the east-west trajectory of life. Now, again, he, he's, drawing, he's using this as an example to say, man, if, if that's all you live for, is the, you know, if, if your life is not centered in the glory of Christ, you're just going to walk out there, the sun's up, the sun's down. The sun's up, the sun's down. Another day, it's just, it's meaningless. It's, 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 it's a treadmill. And then he says, all right, let me give you an example number two. The wind. This is north-south. Okay, so what's the, what's the sun? East, west, wind, north-south. He covers the whole world. He says there in verse 6, the wind blows to the south, goes to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. Now, we know that the wind is pretty unpredictable, right? But what's he saying about the wind? It's in its rut. It goes north, goes south. It goes north, goes south. It keeps going, the wind, the wind, the wind. Sun goes up, sun goes down. Wind goes north, wind goes south. Blah, 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 blah. It's all, you know, nature's in a rut. If you look at nature, it's just in this treadmill of a rut the sun goes up the sun goes down the wind blows this way the wind blows that way and then he says okay if that's not bad enough example number three says look at the rivers the rivers and the streams run into the sea but they never really do anything look there verse seven all streams run to the sea but the sea's not full to the place where streams flow there they flow again now probably solomon is thinking about what here the Dead Sea. 1,380 feet below sea level. 
the lowest point on earth. No outlet. What does the Jordan River do? Starts at Mount Hermon in the north, flows south into the Dead Sea, and it doesn't go anywhere. And he's basically saying the rivers flow, and they don't really do anything. He's not talking about evaporation here, which he could say, you know, rivers evaporate. So sun goes up, sun goes down. Wind blows, wind blows. The seas, run, the seas you know, fill the oceans, but nothing happens. He's basically saying nature is on this treadmill. A little hamster on the treadmill. Now, I don't like treadmills. I had an accident one time on a treadmill, Donald Trump. You know how they always tell you to put your feet apart when you start it? And one time, Aiden, I think Aiden almost broke on my mom's treadmill one time because he was playing. But, I mean, I, I like cardio, and I like weightlifting, and I've done things like insanity and things like that. But treadmill is particularly not very fun for me. And most people, when you're at the gym and you see people on treadmill, they look like they're having fun. Because all you're doing is you're in one place and you're trying as hard. You know, like, at least now on treadmills, they have, like, those virtual treadmills I've seen where you can, like, you know, picture a picturesque place where you're running. Well, in the real world, you're still in this little thing running. <laughs> Nobody is ever happy on a treadmill. And they always actually do tests telling you treadmills really don't do a lot to... Um, to help you lose weight. They're bad on your knees. And so nobody has fun on a treadmill. If you have fun on a treadmill, I'm sorry. Most people probably don't. But he's saying this is the way nature is. It's like on a treadmill, and it's not having fun. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. And then look what he says there in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. (laughs) He's going to give an example from the senses Okay, he's moved from nature to our, to our senses. He's basically saying, man, when I look at nature and I see this treadmill, it's frustrating. It's wearisome. A man can't utter it. I'm speechless. I, I just throw my hands up. I, I don't even know what to say. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to say. A man can't utter it. The eye's not satisfied with seeing. The more I see this, the more frustrated I get. No ear filled with hearing. Uh, it becomes so dull that you hear about these things, it just goes in one ear and out the other. And so when you stop and think about this futility that he's pitching for us, the sun goes up, the sun goes down. The wind blows, the wind blows. The rivers run into the sea. You, You sit back and he's saying, really, nothing's been accomplished. It's a rut. Nothing's been gained. It's wearisome. Are you depressed yet? Okay. In verse 9, he depresses us more and says, listen, there's really nothing new under the sun. History repeats itself. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. History repeats itself. Now, I want you to think of all the technological advances in just in the 20th century. The 20th century probably had more technological advances than any other century. What did you have in the 20th century? Automobile, airplane, space shuttle, microwave, satellite television, film. I heard somebody say internet, internet was not... Yeah, internet came in late. What was that? Electricity. I mean, all that stuff. Now, what have we had in the last 10 years? smartphones, tablets, digital Wi-Fi, Google, all these medical advances. So with all the advances and things, what still hasn't changed? You're going to go out tonight and the sun's going to go down. The sun's going to come up. 
you're going to go out and the wind's going to blow and you're going to go out and see the rivers run into the sea. Generations come, generations go. But what do we as humans want? What comes out? I think it's, was it today or tomorrow? iPhone 7 comes out. Is it tomorrow? A lot of people are going to wait in line for iPhone 7. We as humans have an insatiable desire for something new. I want that new iPhone. I want that new car. I want that new gadget. I want that new experience. We want to chase after everything new that comes down the pike. But there's nothing new. So in Solomon's time and in our time, people are the same. We're still on this eager quest for fame, power, and happiness and pleasure and something new to satisfy us as we move closer and closer to death. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, let me just ask you, does anybody here know who invented the microwave? The microchip? No, offer, you can Google it. You can Google it. Anybody here off the top of their head know who created the microchip? Jet Fusion? Who was the first pilot of the space shuttle? Who won the Academy Award movie last year for best movie, best actress? I have no idea. But you know what? Last year, people really cared. And 50 years ago, people really cared. And tomorrow, people are going to really care until something new comes along, until iPhone 8 comes along. (laughs) iPhone 7's good until iPhone 8. And some are still on iPhone 6 or 5. We want new, 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 but we can't even remember the immediate past. A lot of us can't remember what we read yesterday, but we want something new. That, that's really the nature of humans. We want new, new, new. And Solomon says there's really nothing new under the sun. You may get your new iPhone, but there's going to be something new, and you're going to forget what you had, and guess what? The sun's going to keep coming up. The sun's going to go down. The wind's going to blow. Okay. Now, in verse 10, he's going to anticipate an objection. There's going to be somebody say, wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute. Verse 10. Is there a, such a thing of what is said? See, this is new. Somebody's going to come up and say, no, wait a minute. There is, there's, this is new. Look at this. There, there's new stuff all the time. There's new inventions. There's new musicians. There's new bands. There's new movie stars. There's new athletes. There's new forms of entertainment. There's new restaurants. Or is what I've been noticing, and it's very annoying, is that almost every day you watch the TV, there's a new pharmaceutical drug being advertised <laughs> every day. Jubilance, Jardiance, all these different, like, you know, Tejeo. I don't even know what they, like, every day is like, what are these for? How many people have problems? I mean, every day there's new. New, new, new. Somebody's going to stand up and say, there's something new every day. And the preacher's going to sit back and say, yeah, but it's not really new. Yeah, there's going to be a new athlete that's going to be emerging. There's going to be a new season for the Broncos starting tomorrow. There's going to be a new mega movie star. There's going to be a new theme park. There's going to be, Lord willing, a new president. (laughs) There's going to be a new gadget. But there's really nothing new. There's really nothing new. And then in verse 11, he concludes his argument. It, actually, in verse 10, he says, It's already been in the ages before us. 
It's already been. There's nothing new. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. He basically says this, people and events and new things will come and go. People will have short memories and will forget. Unless it gives you satisfaction and pleasure in the here and now, it will soon fade. We have short-term memories. Monuments have been built to people. Names have been erected on sides of buildings. Libraries have been named after benefactors, but do we really even remember these people? Now, Mount Rushmore, yeah, maybe. Like the big things. But, I mean... People come, people go, generations come, generations go. Now, I ask the question, are you depressed? What's his point as he starts this book? What's the ultimate aim of showing the uselessness and emptiness and vanity and transitory nature of this life under under the sun in a fallen world? Is it simply to depress us? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm depressed. What's his point? No, here's what he's doing. The preacher is doing this to expose us to the futility of life without God as center so that when we see this type of life, we'll hunger for something greater and something deeper. Sometimes we need to be shown how absurd and meaningless and useless life truly is without Christ in order for us to truly hunger for Him. So he's he's putting this in HD. I'm showing you what life in a fallen world looks like, and it can be very depressing, it can be very cyclical, it can be meaningless if you adopt a secular worldview. But if you have Christ as the center, it will be totally different. Now you may ask, I don't see anything about Jesus here. I don't see anything about the gospel. Now remember, this is the Old Testament. So the question we're going to ask each week is this. Because if, if I, I could have taught this and I could have been a good Jewish rabbi. And what I've told you would be nothing that a Jewish rabbi would disagree with. So what I've said is not inherently Christian. It's spiritual and biblical. But let's talk about how this points to Christ. So that's the, the final question we're going to look at tonight. How does Ecclesiastes point us to Christ? Well, look at verse 3. What does man gain? What does man profit by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Keep those words in your mind, and let's look at Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What's Jesus saying there? The writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, there is really no gain doing all this stuff. At the end of the day, it's not really gain. And Jesus is even stronger. He says, listen, you can gain the whole world, but lose your soul. And what's it going to profit you? Take up your cross, follow me, deny yourself, lose your life. Now, 
Jesus also addressed the futility of materialism and the desire to gain wealth apart from faith in Christ. He tells a parable in Luke 12, 16 through 21. And I think, this is just conjecture, but if, if, if Solomon was sitting there when Jesus told this parable, Solomon would raise his hand and say, Jesus, you've just explained the man in chapter 1 of my book. So we're going to see the Ecclesiastes 1 man that's chasing after the wind, that's vanity of vanities. The generation comes, generation goes. He's gaining all this stuff. What's he really gaining? A man that's living life under the sun. We're going to see this in this parable. So let's read this parable, Luke 12, 16 through 21. And he told them a parable. That's Jesus saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, Jesus does not condemn this man for being rich in the parable. There's nowhere that Jesus says it's a sin to be rich. Jesus is not telling us that this man gained his riches through dishonest means. So Jesus is not condemning dishonesty. He's not condemning richness. What's Jesus condemning? What's Jesus pointing to in this parable? Three things we see in this parable that Jesus points us to. Number one, the rich man failed to realize his own mortality. Hey, my soul's good. I've got riches. Nothing's going to happen to me. Eat, relax, be merry. What does God say to him? Tonight you're going to die. <laughs> you're, not, you're not immortal. Okay, number two. He thinks his soul will find ultimate satisfaction in stuff. Soul. Notice, how it, notice the wording there. Jesus says, he, he said to his soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, and drink, and be merry. My soul will find satisfaction in what I can accumulate, what I can accomplish. I'll build bigger barns so that everything's about my soul finding satisfaction in stuff. And number three, we see no evidence of the rich man thanking God or honoring God for his abundance. And what does God call him? Fool. Fool. So this rich man is living life under the sun. As a secular humanist wrapped up in materialism without any regard for God. He doesn't think about his soul. Except for to fill himself with material needs. He doesn't honor God, and he finds his purpose in riches. And God's going to end his life that very night, and so the rich fool thought he was in control of his life. He did not read Psalm 39, 4-6, which says this, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths. 
and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Look at the words there. I'm just going to keep it up on the screen. Look at the words there. Fleeting, hand breaths, nothing, breath, shadow. Does that sound a lot like chapter 2? I mean, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So this man in this parable is the epitome of the Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11 man. So in contrast, how does Jesus tell us to gain? How should we view material wealth? That's the, the issue of this first chapter of Ecclesiastes. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Well, what does Jesus say about that? The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19-21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus addresses the issue of the heart. And Paul sums up the difference between the Ecclesiastes man and true Christian labor. What's, that? What's the question again? Verse 3, what does man gain? What does man profit? What does he get by all of his labor, by all of his toil, which he toils under the sun? What's he labor? What's he get? It's a, it's a depressing, you don't get anything if your labor is for yourself, if it's selfish, if there's no God-honoring aspect to it, there's nothing. It's meaningless. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 58? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's the exact opposite. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, unless your labor is in the Lord. When you lose your life to find it, when you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, when you fear Christ, when you live for Jesus, when you find satisfaction in Him, when you live a life of dependence upon Him, then the work that you do in Him, for Him, is not in vain. There's purpose. It's not vanity. Vanity, all is vanity. So what's the main teaching of this passage in light of the entirety of the Bible? Honing it in here to the very, to the very end. I think this is what Ecclesiastes 1-11 through says. Seeking material gain through worldly and secular means is absurdly futile, much like a hamster running on a, the proverbial treadmill. Instead, seek Christ, live for Him, and find your joy in Him. And whatever your labor is for Him, it will not be in vain, but will have a God-honoring purpose. So it is not depressing if it's for Christ. It's not in vain 
if it's for Christ. If it's secular, if it's worldly, if it's for yourself, it's absurd. Thus ends our first session of Ecclesiastes. Are there any questions, comments, or snide remarks? For the Kohelet that's at the front of the room. <laughs>